Hi, I'm Kim LaPree from the Teachers Need Teachers podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect others. Find other interesting podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Hey, welcome back. Steve here. And today I'm talking with Liam D'Alessiums. That's right, Liam's back. And he was last on this show in episodes 281 and 282. So go check those out. Liam is the founder of the teacher support organization called PRAC-E, and today we're focused on the world of edu-business, why educators need to be careful, lessons Liam learned in dealing with a bad situation, and thoughts about helping teachers in the classroom. This is part one. Thanks for listening. Lots to learn. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. You are listening to Teaching, Learning, Leading K-12, a podcast for educators, helping you help kids achieve their dreams. And now here's Steve with this week's show. Liam D'Alessiums is an education entrepreneur, registered teacher, post-grad master's student, and academic researcher from Australia. After seeing firsthand the dismal state of affairs of beginning teachers across the world, Liam co-founded PRAC-E to help find a solution to the teacher drought. Pracky has hosted several Pracky symposiums and teacher panels and have created regular digital media to support beginning teachers. Through Pracky's work, Liam has been the subject of a nationwide story on the ABC News, as well as being a special guest on several education podcasts in Australia and the United States. Liam's most recent goal is to aid teachers wanting to start their own media channels, professional development training program, or edu business. This unregulated business world can be scary and unforgiving for teachers, as Liam found out during Pracky's growth. Liam hopes to be an agent of change in the educational sphere and continue to challenge traditional ideas. Liam, thanks for joining me again, and say hi to everyone. Hello, everyone over there in America. Thanks, for, thanks Steve, for having me back on. It's an absolute pleasure to be back on. And despite all the technical difficulties of talking to someone, who, who thought it would be so difficult to talk to someone live from the other side of the world? But uh, <laughs> you know, we're here live, we got it sorted. So yeah, I'm very excited to be back on the show. Yeah, just because I can't read a calendar. I mean, it's, it's like, I, I tell you, it is, it is interesting. The cool thing is, is that we're talking across the world. So we make I know, There's like Atlanta and Brisbane is... <laughs> a funny combination i think with other parts of america it's a bit more forgiving but i've been on atlanta the brisbane time calculators trying to work it out there's pretty much a one hour time slot where we're both awake <laughs> so, um, but yeah we're, we're live and uh it's amazing to be on it well i'm glad to have you back on and we got a lot of stuff going on in your world and and uh, this is uh we're going to do this kind of as a two-part uh, episode and or episodes and uh, um, and in this first part we're going to kind of get a little bit into teaching and talk a little bit about Pracky and then talk and just kind of tempt everyone about what's coming next which is this whole thing about edu business so um, before we go any further let's just what got you interested in in being a teacher and looking at being becoming a teacher at one point yeah sure well I suppose if you go really, really far back, um, I have a lot of teachers in the family, which is, I think, a, a way a lot of people get into the profession. My father's a teacher and basically 
we always have a running joke in our family that our <laughs> all our professions are always the professions to get hit hardest by the tax brackets. So we're teachers, cops, and nurses. <laughs> nice, nice. Yeah, whenever the new budget comes out, that's always the professions to get hit hardest. So we always have a little joke about that. But um, I suppose one thing that made me passionate about becoming an educator was that when I was a student myself, um, in my kind of middle school years, so grades seven, eight, nine. I was becoming really disenfranchised with schooling. I felt that it didn't really have a purpose in my life. My grades were slipping every single year. I became basically the only thing I was holding on to was sport. Um, I loved Aussie rules footy and basketball, but I kind of became, I was in like a really low point in my life at around grade nine, 10. I was in a really big private school over here. Um, and ours is kind of more, our private schools over here, there's probably not really an equivalent of it in America because it's more like the British system, I suppose. We have that interesting identity down here in Australia. Probably the closest thing would be your military schools that I see so often, probably something akin to that. Establishments, uniforms, that type of thing. And I was really disenfranchised with it and um, I became, I lost motivation for the sport that I was engaged with any co-curricular I was a part of. Um, I find it really difficult to go to school really. And so one day we decided that something had to happen and there wasn't really any reconciling with the school that I was at. So we decided I had to change schools. And so I went to basically the opposite school that you could possibly imagine there were some other options, but basically we thought that'd be going from a frying pan into the fire. So we found this small independent school that had just opened up called music industry college in Brisbane. It was only grades 11 and 12. It's probably under at that time, it's probably around 40 to 50 students. Um, and it was basically like university light. It was free dress, um, boys and girls. So the school I was at before was single sex, only boys. We should get a Lord of the Flies kind of stuff going on there. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> um, it was smack bang in the middle of the city as well. And um, it was all about the music industry, not just music. So it wasn't a prestigious music school with a lot of you know, classical jazz type of things. It was more the industry. So it was very real world. So I got my teeth sunk into music journalism while I was there. And you could go off campus. You had study periods where there weren't any formal classes you had to attend to. And you actually, you know, pushed into becoming a professional musician yourself, getting connections in the industry. And for me, that was absolutely amazing. You know, teachers, my English teacher, best teacher I've ever had, his name was Charlie, uh, excuse me, um, was a former rapper, <laughs> had tattoos all down his arms, wore a run DMC shirt with a trucker cap and cargo shorts and nice. vans. And he was my English teacher. Um, nice. One of the best teachers I've ever had when I was at school. And for me, going from this massive mainstream to something progressive and smaller and independent and challenging new ways about thinking, that made the world of difference for me. It wasn't always easy, but it pushed me to really challenge what I like as a person, what makes me, what, you know, what drives me, what passion I have. And um, that was great for me. And uh, I passed quite well and... I'm still using skills that I learned from that school now. And that would never have happened if I just stayed at that prior school that I was at. 
So I suppose as an educator, what inspired me to be a teacher is to do that for someone else is to have those students in my classes that are disenfranchised with schooling or think that it's just a waste of time. If I can spark something within them to, you know, see what they actually enjoy about life and what they can pursue after school, that's what motivates me. That's what I find really exciting about teaching. So I suppose that's kept my motivation for the whole industry. That's awesome. The, uh, and it's, it's cool that you had such a unique shift in the types of schools that you were um you attended there that that very real world focus that uh, in and of itself um is it unique for you know is, are there, there are lots of different choices that uh, you have in australia or in your area or um i, mean, um, what- I think traditionally there's only been two perhaps two and a half there's been the public system, which is run by the government, which is just your local state school, um, which is usually free or free-ish. Um, and then there's the private independent schools. And that's more akin to the things you see like on Monty Python or, you know, the stuffy, the cliche stuffy private school. Yes. Um, that's probably what we have. And then there's an, a whole another sector, which is run by religious schools. And they're kind of in a world of their own as well, Catholic education and things like that. Um, so those were basically the main two in Australia, whereas now we're getting more schools that are a bit more independent, a bit smaller. That's kind of pushing in. I suppose it's equivalent to the charter school movement in America, something sort of similar. Gotcha. Um, smaller schools that can really speak to a community that are independently run, um, whether it be for music people or trades. So if you want to be an electrician or a carpenter, you can go to different schools or, you know, if you, even schools that for, are for kids that don't fit into mainstream schools have special needs or come from traumatic backgrounds. There's kind of smaller schools that are popping up for them. I find that incredibly exciting. So I think there's been a, traditionally there hasn't been much choice, but we're seeing now in Australia more and more small, schools popping up and i think that's fantastic very cool and thanks for explaining that and just as a side note i have to <laughs> you know once you you mentioned monty python then all of a sudden i've got john cleese in my head and uh, <laughs> thinking of a um the first thing that pops in my mind is ministry of silly walks so now yeah. now, now yeah. i'm in trouble so <laughs> <laughs> oh some of those ones uh, i think we talked about it last podcast but some some when they take off private schools um especially in the meaning of life. It's not even funny for me. I cry. It's too accurate. It's, it's, <laughs> oh no. <laughs> and then Australia also has a bit of a, I suppose a cultural cringe that we try. We're basically, we think we're the, the little brother to America or England. So you'll find that England's actually much more progressive sometimes and that we keep that old conservative view of education almost to keep up like they're the big brother um so yeah it's it's a bit of an interesting culture and then that's separated massively by the um the country as well so schools that are a bit more warmer and up the top of the country a bit more relaxed but down in melbourne and sydney and parts of adelaide as well is um if they're so posh and so conservative that that doesn't really kind of go up to perth or brisbane or Townsville or Cairns that the, the south of the country is probably a bit more notorious for it. 
Gotcha. That's, that's cool. What type of school did you go to, Steve? I want to ask you this. What was your schooling like? Okay. Well, mine was, uh, I went to um, public school, first of all, and uh, the uh, um, parents were uh, divorced. So there's, I, I went to several different schools, but uh, in and out of all the moving around, I had, uh, um, they were typical public elementary schools where it was um, kindergarten through uh, sixth grade. And uh, I had, in my moving around, I, I think I attended uh, three altogether. And, uh, um, and so then we didn't have middle schools, went from sixth grade, then you went into junior high, which was seventh through ninth grade. And, uh, and so my beginning of my seventh grade year, that's, I'm in the Daytona Beach area of Florida, which is on the east coast of Florida. And uh, the building that uh, I was in, I'll never forget, seventh and eighth grade, third floor. You always wanted to have a class on the third floor of that building because it was a, a street over from the beach. <laughs> oh, wow. And at the third, wow. it, the building was built in like 1918 and it's no longer there. It was torn down. Actually, it was torn down a few years after I graduated from high school, but it's, you know, it's now a parking lot for some big <laughs> resort. That's always a good sign, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> my, my junior school was like that. <laughs> nice. The year after I graduate, they go, tear it down. <laughs> This school's barely inhabitable. I think I was here for six years. Yeah, exactly. That's the same thing with us. It's like, you've got to be kidding me now. It's, they actually had an area that was closed off that everyone had stories about, you know, what's on the other side of that plywood wall, you know, type thing. But yeah. the, it was wild. The third floor, you could see, I mean, you'd go in the, and having been a teacher now, I, I feel for that teacher because you'd walk into the classroom and the, the window would be shut and the blinds would be uh, pulled down and there were like two sets of blinds to darken the room and uh, so the first thing as a kid you do is you go in there and you would open the blinds and you'd open the window so you could look out and see across the houses that would and there, there was the beach and now what's funny is that even though it's a parking lot from that same spot they've built so many condos over there you couldn't have seen <laughs> you'd be looking at somebody's condo <laughs> in the modern world but the uh, so that was a trip because that, that was like this weird alluring thing um with the beach out there because you could hear it and you could see it and you're like, Oh my gosh. The, uh, but, uh, anyway, uh, graduated from Good for daydreaming uh, very much. So very much. So, and, uh, ended up, uh, um, went to two different high schools, but both public and, uh, um, ended up, uh, once again, because of moving around, um, with the parent situation. But, uh, so, you know, the high school was 10 through 12 at that time. And, uh, um, and from there I went to, uh, and that led me to a military academy because I became a second lieutenant in our, in our army, um, right after high school. So that, that, that was my schooling. You know, we had uh, matter of fact, the reason why I wanted to be a history teacher is because my, <laughs> my history teachers were so boring. I'm like, this stuff is a lot more interesting. And so all the people who had me, hopefully I did something to make it more exciting because that was my plan. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, anyway, that was, that's a little bit about my, my experience and the moving around was interesting because I, you know, so I have, I've lost touch with everybody. It, it's weird when, you know, if they'd had Facebook and stuff like that in my time, maybe we would have <laughs> stayed in touch, but eh, no, none of those contacts. When I was younger, I started off in um, a little town outside of Brisbane that's about an hour and a half inland called Toowoomba. Um, and that's kind of up in a mountain. It's actually got a, its own little microclimate there. So it's always about 15 degrees colder than what it is in Brisbane, Celsius. Um, mm -hmm. And um, 
So if it's like 32 degrees, which is like a pretty hot day in Brisbane, it'll be, you know, 16, 15 degrees in Toowoomba because it's just up high on this mountain range. And it's an interesting town because it's split in half between kind of hipstery young families and probably the most conservative religious they call it the little Bible belt <laughs> of Queensland is it just straight through Toowoomba. Um, and that coming from Toowoomba to Brisbane was a pretty big jump for me. So it's basically a little country town into the big smoke. Although if you, <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. I think if, if, if some Americans saw what we consider to be big smoke in, in Australia, you'd probably laugh, but it, to me it was Brisbane was a big city. Gotcha. Um, but they call it Bris Vegas is the little nickname for Brisbane down here because allegedly the main streets are kind of similar to Las Vegas. I don't think it is, but that's the little <laughs> nickname we have down here. So Toowoomba is very, very small. Um, an example of this is the biggest event is the Carnival of Flowers where old ladies do flowers all over the park and everyone goes, oh, isn't that pretty? <laughs> that's the nice. biggest thing that happens to <laughs> For young people, there's nothing to do. In fact, the biggest thing is this, this will probably be lost in translation because it's the most Australian thing that I could possibly imagine. But the main thing to do for young people here is to, is to put little custom bits on their really cheap cars. So <laughs> my brother... <laughs> my brother decided to lower his car, but then also put a massive exhaust on it. So nice. anything other than perfectly flat, he <laughs> used to scrape along the ground and the youth, they called it doing manies, which is basically all you do is you get your mates in your, in your hopped up cars and you drive up and down the main street. Awesome. That's it. You drive up this main street, then you <laughs> turn, turn around <laughs> and you go back down the main street and then you turn around and go back up the main street and then you turn around and you go back down the main street and that in the, in Toowoomba is called doing manies. Let's go do manies, bruh. <laughs> nice. So that's, that was the youth in Toowoomba gotcha. is this tiny little small activity. That was the main thing to do. So coming to Brisbane where, you know, there's actually skyscrapers and there's actually, you know, things to do. It was, it was pretty massive for me. So, I think that'd be the same in America is did you, you said you moved, moved around. Was there a big cultural difference when you went to the different cities? I think the biggest change was that, uh, you know, just not knowing anybody. And so you had to go through that. Here we go again. I got to start off with don't know anybody. Got to figure out whether I'm going to reach out or it's going to be by accident or whatever like that. So, but yeah. uh, as far as culturally, I mean, the biggest problem was was that in the beginning some of my schools were very small and then I start moving into areas where they're very big in, in terms of like you know uh, what I call big which my high school had um, just under 600 kids to graduate in a graduating class whereas the school I moved from before that this graduating class was probably around you know three mid 300s to 400 and uh, you know it's just uh, so it that's that's where you ran into the kind of cultural just the different groups and stuff like that so not too bad but uh still was in florida <laughs> and it's still. always interesting having those seeing those cultural differences as a teacher as well so <laughs> i've taught in brisbane but then there's a little township outside of brisbane called ipswich um like the british ipswich um and their culture is a lot different completely different values, morals, socioeconomic standing. So t going teaching there, you know, it's an hour down the road, but it was 
I had to teach completely differently. And then in Queensland, so I'm a Queenslander. Um, I probably wouldn't even be able to get a job down in Victoria. Well, that might be a generalization, but the, the myth is, is that Victorians hire Victorians and that gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> there, there's a bit of a, a myth around that they're, I don't think it's a myth, but they say they're, they're a bit arrogant about the way they, they teach and they think, oh, you wouldn't understand. You're from Queensland. You're from South Australia. You don't get it. So nice. yeah, it's interesting when you teach different cultures as well. That's, that's, Awesome, because I can I can say that through my teaching and um, administrative uh, background and so forth. Now we did have a lot of that because you go over to the different schools, just like you said, as a teacher, and they have those different uh, norms and the and, and different groups and the different uh, um, ways they approach life and so forth. And uh, and you change those different communities and you deal with with different aspects of the world and and some of it's socioeconomic, some of it's simply because of where they are located. And some of it's because of uh, other types of issues. Like in one school where I was a principal, we had to get gangs under control and stuff like that. And so it's, you know, it, it's, it just depends on uh, what that in, environment's like. I, and, and it's seen it from an adult perspective is even more interesting. Because just like you said, I, we also have, it's, you know, I, I haven't taught in another state. I um, could have taught in Florida, but moved to Georgia shortly after I got my uh, teaching credentials. But the, uh, you know, I... Um, taught in, in different places in Georgia. And one of the things that uh, we have those places too, like, uh, you know, you'll never get hired there. You're not from there <laughs> type thing. Yeah. And uh, yeah, well, Queensland's kind of like Florida, I suppose. And Victoria would be like gritty New York, I guess. It's like uh, cold, dark, nice. <laughs> aggressive. <laughs> nice. But, you know, in talking to my schools now, when I went to school in the area of Florida where I was, I can tell you that it's interesting going from the beach culture to the inland culture, because in the inland area, there's, you know, like the area that I ended up going to where I graduated from high school, um, part of the communities that surrounded it were known for growing ferns, you know, the plant that lots of people put in flowers. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, yeah. And, and I don't know if they were really at the time, the fern capital of the world or not, but they had a giant sign that said fern capital of the world. So you leave the beach culture and go to the fern capital of the world. And, <laughs> you know, and it's a, uh, it's a little different because over there, there's a lot more hunting and fishing going on of the, yeah. the lake and stream type. Um, whereas at the beach side, it's either beach, you know, it's going into the ocean type fishing or it's, it's really, you know, it's the, <laughs> it, it's just a whole different world. I mean, I think about some of the shirts that were more acceptable in the beach area, then when you yeah. went inland, there's a little different style there. Yeah, it's, it's the same around here. In Queensland, we love big things. So Sunshine Coast has the big pineapple. Nice. Um, the Central Coast got the big banana. Nice. And then Northern New South Wales got the big prawn. And just every, nice. Um, Bundaberg got the big sheep. You know, every, every 100 kilometers or so, there's just a big thing of, <laughs> about, you know, just different produce of that area so yeah it's, it's kind of similar that's that's cool that's that's awesome that's uh yeah we have our you know if you come up into some parts of georgia it's a giant peach and uh other areas they got blueberries so it's you know it just depends on what you're talking about so good yeah. good good stuff it's cool talking about this because you know it's a and especially thinking about it in terms of uh, teaching and such the different uh, ways that you look at this because it's one world as a, as a kid going through it <laughs> it's a whole a whole nother aspect as a teacher so good in some ways students are a bit more um they kind of get used to things a bit more like when i, I remember changing schools 
and you, you hate it for maybe the first week and then you just go, oh, well, this is my school now and you kind of get on with things. Or I think right. adults complicate it sometimes and moving city to city, uh, there's like this cultural divide. But in the end, you're teaching humans, you're teaching kids. I mean, I've taught uh, in Australia, there's a, a probably teaching the indigenous populations, probably a, a different challenge or a different not a challenge, but a different way of teaching, I suppose, just from the morals of that culture. Um, whereas, you know, in some universities, they go through, oh, you need to do this, you need to do this. But when you talk to the elders of that community or teachers that have taught those Indigenous students for a prolonged period, you just realise they're just kids. And when you right. treat them as such, things just work. And that's... I find that's the best, probably the best thing that I've learned as a teacher is that kids are kids, no matter um, their socioeconomic background, cultural background, religious background, and just talking to them and giving them respect usually helps you out way more than thinking too much about who they are, who you are. So that's, that served me well as an educator. That is so powerful what you just said, because it works. <laughs> if it was working for you in Australia, because I can tell you it works here in the U.S., because that's, that's one of the things that uh, is, if you can get an adult to understand that and uh, make use of that and recognizing, the, because the kids do have, they have so many things in common. You know, and it's, uh, if you recognize that little give and take with respect, having a sense of humor doing, and being able to, uh, you know, Go with the flow, I think, is one of the <laughs> great sayings that it help you as a, as a teacher, especially when you change the different groups and things like that. And it's just so cool because it's like, uh, you know, it, it, one of the, when, whenever I ask somebody a question about, you know, what do you like about teaching and, and working with kids? And usually what comes back is that it's never a dull moment <laughs> at some point. And I'd, yeah, and I'd suggest to the beginning teachers listening is that if an opportunity comes up like that, never to feel scared or anxious or nervous about that situation, there will be some nerves because obviously you care about doing well. Um, but for an example, my first practical experience, I went into my classroom in the outskirts of Ipswich and obviously, I mean, the music industry college was a bit more real world but I'd spent years at that big private school. So I was a bit sheltered looking back and reflectively. Um, and I got my first class of secondary kids and I looked out and there was two white kids that looked like me. That was it. And then everyone else was from a different culture. I had African kids. I had um, Polynesian students. I had indigenous students. And initially I was a bit overwhelmed because I was at university. They, they, I had multiple units teaching me about how do you teach um, to the different values of different cultures. And I was probably overthinking it a little bit um, because these students um, were from these cultures. So my, um, there were some African students in my class that, you know, they, they, had a lot of trouble with the way I spoke. They didn't speak English as well. So that presented a new set of challenges in terms of my instruction and things like that. But in the end, once I had them for a few weeks, that was probably my favorite class I've ever had. Cool. And then I actually really enjoyed it. And we talked about our cultural differences um, and that because we were talking about uh, attachment to land 
in geography. Why do some cultures value land over others? And that was probably the most interesting, engaging class I've ever taught because we all talked about that. And then there was another practical experience I had where I got given the English as an additional language or dialect class. And I had students from Vietnam, China, um, the Middle East, um, Japan. Um, and we were, <laughs> we had the book for the term was a, an Australian book that used a lot of local slang. <laughs> I couldn't, I was reading as one lesson. I, I was reading the book for them out loud to kind of get them into it and excited about it. And every five seconds they're putting their hands up going, what does that word mean? So <laughs> what does that mean? What does that mean? Nice. What does that mean? Nice. Um, I was like, God, oh, they've given me an easier book. <laughs> what happened in 1984 by George Orwell? Now I've got to get this local slang Aussie book. Nice. Um, but there was this, I remember there was one, where we were, it was talking about the Queen Victoria markets in Melbourne, which is this famous market, um, big deli section where you can buy fresh meats and cheeses and veggies. And it's a big cultural kind of thing of Melbourne. Um, I understood it completely, but a lot of the other students didn't understand it at all. And so I kind of put the book down and for the rest of the lesson, I was talking to them about what their equivalent was. And, you know, some of the students were saying that, you know, they have these noodle houses where they go and they all try these different things. And this person was saying, oh, we've got these bizarre and my local district and we do this. And we were able to like come together as a class over where we buy food. That was the one thing that we could communicate with. And uh, it was so interesting hearing the way that like markets work in the different countries that where these students were from. And so that's another, you know, so if you're nervous about that, I would say grab it with both horns get into it because those are some of the classes i've enjoyed most that's cool that's so cool and, and it's funny because my very first teaching um experience was in a in a school that was extremely international and it's just funny like you were talking about i mean my my first uh class um i had uh, i had five preps out of a six traditional six period day which means that i was teaching five different classes <laughs> also was floating across the building and in my own classroom so i had to use a, a cart to move my stuff around and one of the classes had an extremely international makeup in the class and it was a u.s history course and uh, i had kids from all over the world in there and what was funny was i like puns <laughs> history just provides just so much fuel for puns you know, <laughs> stupid humor. And I'd say yeah. some things. And there was this young lady who was from China um, in that class. And she sat next to this very funny guy from the Philippines. And um, I, one day she's back there flipping between the pages of her dictionary, just really frantically flipping the pages. And he, and I see him look over at her. And this is when I really understood, I'm going to have to work on explaining what I'm talking about. Because he looked at her and he's going, it's a joke a joke and she looked at him and then smiled and went oh and, and closed the dictionary <laughs> and i went oh yeah this is a different world okay <laughs> we gotta work on this so i know and australian books and texts are the worst for that because even with <laughs> pracky that's a little colloquialism that we use for prac students we call them are oh, you pracky we shorten everything everything's a slang word probably like the Irish or the British where they just shorten everything. Everything's a nickname. Nice. Everything's got some sort of humor. 
Like um, if someone's got red hair, they'll be nicknamed Bluey. You know, that, so <laughs> there's, a, there's so many different things, so many different layers. Um, that, yeah, that, that cultural difference can actually be really fun to play with. Very cool. Very cool. So, so you mentioned something there that I want to make sure we got into. So, you know, you, speaking of that, because your, your company is called Pracky. And can you talk a little bit about, because I've heard you mention it, you were, when you were at the, practice, um, what, what Prack means? What are you talking about? Yeah, sure. Regular so, um, we call it practical experience. And that's what, we, that's what pre-service teachers do in Australia. Um, depends on the uni, but segmentally throughout their bachelor of a uh, bachelor of education degree, which usually takes four years to complete. Um, and that's when you actually go out into a school and you, it ramps up. So in, the, in your first prac, you're just observing. So you're in your creepy chair at the back, watching all the students <laughs> taking notes and then maybe doing some group work or something like that. And then every prac, it gets more and more um, intense. So you may be, We'll take one line, your next prac, you'll take one class and then your next one, two, three. And then finally you have your internship at the end in your fourth year. And that's for a whole term. So about eight to 10 weeks, um, you're in a school and they give you a class on your own for the first time where you're responsible for everything. Um, And so why Pracky existed was that, that that process is very different for a lot of different people and it hasn't been perfected yet and a lot of universities do it very differently and i was just noticing that it's it's a pretty hard process when i went through it's been gentrified slightly but when i went through it was pretty intense and the mentor teacher that you get given is just up to luck really there's no process around what you want from a school what your goals within education are even how you're going to link professionally and, and personality wise. There's nothing like that. You just get sent out wherever and it's up to you to make it work. And if it doesn't, a lot of students, pre-service teachers get into a bit of trouble with, with that. And at that school that I was at, um, it was a bit of a challenge. Um, like I said, it was a students from a lot of different cultures and a low socioeconomic area, which had a lot of different external problems. Um, or issues that that community was facing, which impacted the school. Um, And a lot of students, pre-service teachers kind of struggle with that. In fact, when I was on my first PRAC, a lot of my peers that I was with actually dropped out mid-PRAC. So they they actually went to their university and withdrew from their whole degree because of this one experience within the school. And it was happening more and more and more more often. And then eventually when we graduated, I mean... First year, there would have been thousands of us. And then when we graduated, it was under 100. Um, so, and that's extending into early career teachers as well. Um, only about 25% of teachers that enroll in a Bachelor of Education actually stay with the profession long-term. And there's a big dropout rate within teachers within the first five years. So Pracky wanted to help fill that gap because I know in America, you've got groups that actually are third party somewhat and look after pre-service teachers and look after their interests. I know England has something similar. South Africa's um, having something that they're creating some new ways of thinking. Um, 
Whereas in Australia, there's not much of that really. It's basically up to your university. And I always say, it's like going to the police about your drug problem. (laughs) (laughs) You're probably, you're probably going to get help of some sort, but it may not be the help that you were looking for. Um, So a lot of people try and just sort it out themselves because it's not like you're going to go to university and say, Hey guys, I'm feeling really inadequate and like I can't teach to the people that are offering your marks um, or for early career teachers going to the, uh, the college of teachers for their state who give them their registration to try and say, yo, I'm actually having a really bad time in the class. But a lot of people keep it to themselves and that only lasts for so long before people get burnt out or they think that, you know, they don't have what systems they blame themselves where there's that lack of collegiality where they, they fail to understand that a lot of beginning teachers in the exact same position are like that all over their city, state, country. So what we wanted to do with Pracky was to have something a bit independent, a bit of a code breaker away from the university school system where pre-service teachers and early career teachers could come and it's not trying to sell a uh, a product or an agenda and it's uncensored as well so we're not going to sugarcoat anything we're going to say well this is actually what works and we connect them with teachers that have been in the field we do that through events and digital media as well um, and it's something that we saw as a gap in the market because one day i was struggling myself i had a really bad prac um, and i wanted something like pracky so i looked it up in australia and it didn't exist so i just thought well why not create it myself that's awesome because that's, you know, it, what you just described is, I mean, I got a lot of people listening going, yeah, that's like what I, I know about here in the States. You know, it's, I mean, it, it's so much that happens that it gets overwhelming. Um, you know, I, I don't know about it in your schools, but here uh, we also have extracurricular activities that you can sponsor. And a lot of times the, the brand new teacher will end up being in charge of some of the biggest <laughs> extracurricular roles ever. Um, whether it's a, it's a varsity coach for some sport or uh, um, just just uh, sponsoring some sort of club or something like that. And that'll, that'll help put a lot of pressure on them about uh, trying to find time to work with kids and, uh, you know, develop their lessons and so forth and, uh, you know, all of that. So that's, that's cool that that's, you develop Pracky to deal with that, uh, helping the, the new teacher, the beginning teacher, the teacher in, in the classroom uh, mm. working with kids. That's, Awesome. Yeah, I heard a great quote the other day about the teaching profession and basically it just summarized my beliefs about this whole issue. It said, teaching is one of the only professions where a rookie will take the place of a veteran yet be expected to perform at the very same level. And I was just like, yep, that's the way, it's, that's the, way the system is organized at the moment. Um, a teacher could retire after 30, 30 years in the profession or more and then they could hire a graduate teacher that has just come out of college or university. And if they don't perform at that exact same level and they get one parent complaint, one student complaint, or they rub their head at department the wrong way once, you know, suddenly they're dragged through the coals for it. Yes. Um, and there's very little in the place at the moment to support those people outside of teacher unions. Um, and usually statistically beginning teachers and young teachers don't join unions because they're just trying to survive day to day. So I suppose something like Pracky is trying to fix that problem. That's awesome. Cause that's, that's what I would see it as doing. And that's what, uh, you know, you need that uh, critical friend, helpful friend, somebody to help you that you turn to just like something you were talking about where you're not going to go to the, to uh, 
the people who are giving you the grades or possibly could, you know, let you go <laughs> um, when because you worry that uh, if you show them that you have a weakness that you might not uh, that that not be, might not be good. You know, you know, here, if you know, one of the things that uh, new teachers struggle with is whether they should trust the principal as to be somebody that I, I know you hire me and stuff, but I'm, I'm struggling with this, <laughs> this part right here and working with kids. Can you help me with this? And you worry that, you know, a lot of times it, the teachers see that as that, that shows a weakness. And I don't know if I should, I can do that or not. Cause I want to keep my job. <laughs> and yeah, uh, exactly. And you have to figure out those internal politics as well. The people in the different departments, I mean, everything you were talking about is so, so very real and you need that critical friend to, to help you deal with that stuff. Even like, you know, I, in my first uh, couple of years as a teacher, I ran into a gentleman who I, I think I told you that, uh, you know, I floated, I didn't, I didn't have a classroom. And one of the classrooms I floated into uh, this, this gentleman, in the beginning of this, this new year, uh, he'd been at the school for 18 years. Why do I know that? Because he told me every day, <laughs> it's like, dude, I, I don't care that you've been here 18 years. I just need some help. And, uh, you know, and I had to, we, he ended up, you know, we ended up like in this weird power struggle because he wanted to say, this is my classroom and you just come in and you just kind of go. So I'm going to tell you what to do. And it's like, oh my gosh, man. And I, you know, I had to decide not to be the, the 24 year old and uh, instead try and figure out how to make myself, <laughs> you know, in his eyes, somebody's going to stand up to him and, you know, just crazy stuff like that. So it's just interesting. And it, it, you know, having a critical friend to go to, to say, Hey, can you give me some advice on how to deal with this fool? <laughs> Would yeah, have been nice. Yeah. Yeah. I think <laughs> that's, that's what it's lacking at the moment is people that you can go to that are not directly involved with assessing you. I think that's, that's the key. So that's what Pracky's trying to do. And that's what I think is the beauty of online, you know, communities, whether it be through a podcast or a Facebook group, or even a Twitter hashtag, you know, or an Instagram page, yeah. people, you know, having that collegiality with themselves. Cause I know in, in your first few practices, a, a show I watch on Netflix called bodyguard. And, um, it just reminds me of like what you're expected to be on your first few practices. You know, this guy's protecting a politician and he's the head of security and all he ever says is, Yes, mom. Very good, mom. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that, yeah, it's kind of like that. Yes, sir. Very good, sir. You know, and th these people are just dragging him through the coals and all this horrible stuff happens to him. And every single time he goes, very good. You know, that's, it, that's, that's how you kind of expected to be where people will kick you and drag you down and say, well, you didn't do this. You didn't do this. So I had one instance where um, one of the old class that my feedback was absolutely horrible um she thought that she was on her way to an a plus whereas in my mind she was lucky to get a minus you know <laughs> so um when i did give her draft back and it was probably around the lower end she just went nuts and she went to her father who was a lawyer and he started writing to the head of department demanding nice. that this prac student get out of her class and who am i to say this i got no experience blah 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 so you get situations like that. And I think at the time you just have to be very good mom. Yes, mom. And just to kind of move on with things. You, yes. know, you need those. And then you can go and whinge to your friends, families, or you can connect with other beginning teachers in your area and say, 
this thing happened to me today. Now the fathers of the students <laughs> got it out for me. Now I'm, and then the head of the department was on his side and didn't, you know, didn't support me at all. And I hate it. I've got seven more weeks to go. Blah, blah. I'm so <laughs> I suppose things like Pracky, um, it's a, it's not just a, a nice thing. I think it's a necessity. I agree with you. It really is. That's, you know, being able to have that, you know, I keep using the term that, uh, that, that critical friend that can help you with some ideas and so forth, because just like that situation that you described there, I mean, Oh, crud, <laughs> you know, how do I deal with this? And because all you want is, I just had a discussion like this the other day. All you, all you want is to have a, a conversation with somebody about, you know, this is what she's got to do to improve. And instead you're getting attacked for even thinking that you should dare to comment because you don't know anything, you know, Nice. You know, and so you got to figure out how to not be intimidated by that, which that's where those friends come in. So let me, let me ask you a question. What, Liam, what, um, what do you think is, you know, what are a couple of the, the big challenges that a, a, a new teacher faces uh, when they go into the class in, in Australia? I think finding the right school for you. A lot of the issues that come up a lot are just symptoms of that broader issue. So someone's saying, oh, I don't get along with my head of department or this really bad thing happened to me today or I'm not connecting with my students or there's really bad behaviour management, like it's my class is just off the walls or I spent the whole night creating this lesson plan they didn't listen to me at all or, and I'm getting no support from my head of department or other teachers or I don't think I fit in at the staff room. They don't talk to me. Um, they don't even let me use the instant coffee, you know, stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> stuff like that. Um, I think it all boils down to knowing yourself as a teacher. It's a pretty hard thing to do when you're a beginning teacher because you actually don't know. And I think you need to be a little bit like a bowerbird or a magpie and steal little bits and pieces of knowledge from all your practical experiences and work your, work your way up. So when you finish your degree, you know what you value in education. So some people love private school. Some people would die for their private school. They're going to be an old boy of that school until the day they die. That's fantastic for them. But I know for a fact through multiple experiences that I probably wouldn't be best in a big private school in terms of teaching there. There's just a few things away about that culture of that school and the way they view education, the purpose of education, the purpose of education that um that just doesn't click with me. So that would alleviate a lot of those problems. Whereas if you like that type of thing, that's that's great. You should try and get into the private private system. But I think a lot of the struggles that come are from not being in the right school they don't like you you don't like them and schools differ greatly from school to school um and they sometimes these schools can change when you're still in them for example i had one prac at a school best school i've been to loved it hated leaving on my last day of prac um gave my resume to the principal when i left i wanted to work there and they liked me they loved me they wanted me to get me back i thought yes this is fantastic and then when I went back, there was a different head of department and they hated my guts. They couldn't wait to get me out of there quick enough. And from there, the entire department was horrible. I went back there 
and it was the worst experience I've had within a school. And that was the exact same school. And it was only a year apart from the last time I'd been there. So when you thinking about teaching in a school and what you want from a school, I would talk to your partner, I'll talk to your family members and I'd look yourself in the mirror and think about what you want from education as well. And I'll try to make it work for you as much as possible. I think a lot of beginning teachers don't value themselves and they don't think, and you know, there's a lot of teacher bashing in the media and they think, Oh, I'm just a teacher. I should probably just try to get what I want, get what I can get. I'll just go anywhere. Whereas I think if you really respect yourself and you have honest uh, conversations with with your partners and your family about what you actually want from education and then do your research about schools in your area that might share those values. I think if you can create connections and partnerships with those schools and get your foot in the door at those schools, you're probably going to have a better time of it than thinking. So for example, when I left, I thought, Oh, I'm just going to go to you know this school that shall remain nameless, which is the best school in Brisbane. But um, you know, the more you hear stories about what it's actually like to work in that school, um, you actually realize it's maybe not the best fit. I actually had a job interview at a really stuffy school in Brisbane who's got um, a part of that private school. They call it the, um, the GPS system in Brisbane, greater private school system. They're all kind of connected. And it was one of those schools, big old, you know, old school tie type of things. And I had a job interview there. And I actually withdrew my candidacy as I left the job interview because I just knew from a fact, just from the vibe I was getting from that job interview, it wasn't the right school for me. So I think do your research, try and make connections through, you know, like through Pracky has actually been a great way to get a job for me. <laughs> hasn't, a job hasn't come from it just yet, but I think getting the networking and, and trying to find ways that you can network with people from these schools even volunteering at the schools, um, whether it be coaching a team or being a tutor. Sometimes these, these little positions are paid as well, which is, can be some good pocket money while you're still studying. If you can get some sort of behind the scenes look, you can realize you know, it might be the perfect school and it was exactly what you want. And then you can actually foster that relationship. Or it's like the Wizard of Oz and when you peer behind the curtain, there's a little decrepit old monster behind there and you think, oh, I'm going to keep my, I'm gonna keep my distance away from that school as well. So, yeah, that would be my advice for that type of uh, aspect of beginning teaching. That's powerful, very powerful because you're so right. So let's use, let's use this to shift into Pracky and uh, um, tell us a little bit how, how Pracky has been going and uh, it has a new subject mission. And, and by the way, somewhere in there, I understand you, you've been received some really cool recent recognition. So uh, how about you tell us about that too? Yeah. Uh, the one thing that I really enjoy about Pracky is because it's so small and because it's independent, we can change with the times and change what we deliver and really hear our audience. So when we started, we did kind of big production-y YouTube videos, kind of like the stuff you see on YouTube if you chuck in teacher, beginning teacher advice. So we used to do videos and then we kind of moved on to doing, you know, connecting with real world teachers and interviewing them and doing a podcast. And then we moved on to doing, panel events and recording those and chucking them up on YouTube as well. So people could actually, we had a panel of expert teachers and we had a audience of beginning teachers and they used to just roast them for two hours with questions. And we used to record that in full and chuck that up on YouTube. 
Uh, they're still all up there for free. And I even get people now saying, texting me randomly saying, Oh, I watched symposium three on YouTube the other day. Got just letting you know, like I got a lot out of it and that was uploaded uh, a year ago. <laughs> um, and then we kind of moved into um, helping other people create content. Um, and because it's the edu, the online teacher network is really exploding at the moment. There's so many people making content for teachers and I think the secret's out now. Whereas back in the day, if you wanted a mentor, if you wanted to find someone that's like-minded, you actually had to find them in person. Whereas now you can join a Facebook group, you can follow a Twitter hashtag, you can follow some, you can find some people on Instagram that post really relevant professional development that speaks in your language. Even this podcast is, is an example of it. So we were kind of helping people with that. Whereas now we're working into actually creating our own school. That's our next mission cool. in, over the next five, 10 years um, is replicating that little independent school that I went to when I was a secondary student uh, myself is my goal. I said before at the start of the podcast is to replicate that journey as a teacher. What better way than to actually, you know, create the school myself. You know, some of these schools are popping up, but not at the rate that they need to be to actually create some social change. So our, our mission is, it may not be as explicit. You may not be able to see it on YouTube or Facebook, but, Rest assured, it's the cogs are churning in the background to get that up and running in the next um, five to 10 years. And then from there, we're actually trying to work with some other podcasts and some other creators. Um, it was the inspiration from um, Sam Fetchich and the Edgy Magic um, podcast on the podcast network in America over there that to create an international basically web of these beginning teachers support things. You know, we was with these little islands before, but I think it, we should take advantage of that connection and actually start creating some online summits or some, you know, um, partnered events or content from Australia, America, South Africa, England. You know, I think that's, that's the next step is connecting all these little nodes together into a spider web. So, yeah. And you said before, um, I don't want to toot my horn too much, but yeah, we <laughs> go right Pracky, Pracky got um, awarded a, um, an ASIL award, which is the Australian Council for Educational Leaders. We recently got a, an award for um, educational research in, um, in, le in leadership. So that's, I've got my own little gala dinner coming up and everything like that. So, excellent. oh, well, oh, well, I can say Pracky is an award-winning endeavor now, I suppose. Awesome. Congrats. Uh, yes, <laughs> that, that was, yeah, uh, it's never the reason why I started it. I mean, this, it's a cherry on top, really. Um, the main thing that I get from Pracky is the, the recognition that I really enjoy is when we get a beginning teacher that tells us that we've made a difference or that we really helped them through this or that. So that's what I really get it. I never went into it for awards, but um, yeah, it's a nice little bonus. I suppose. Excellent. That's awesome. And, and, and so kind of where we're, we're starting to get to now is uh, um, where I, we're going to bring this episode, this um, to a close here in just a minute. And, you know, one of the things that I want to make sure that we close out on is kind of introducing everybody to what edu business is because uh, we're going to, uh, and why it's been exploding, because we're going to uh, talk a little bit more in depth about that because of an experience that Pracky had as it, uh, in its transformation and uh, in its journey. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, uh, 
let's go ahead and shift to what is EduBusiness and why it's been exploding. Yeah, well, I was talking before about all these kind of online endeavors that people are doing. Um, and it's been really exciting for people to connect online because you can see that collegiality where everyone thinks, oh, it's just me. You know, my mentor just has it out for me. Or I just don't get along with my head of department. Maybe it's all my fault. Maybe I'm not actually cut out to be a teacher. And that's a big part of the teacher drought, why people are leaving. So this explosion of online content has been absolutely fantastic because people can connect with people they never knew existed and actually realize, oh, it's not just me. A lot of people in my position are feeling this as well. And it's never been easier to create that content. It takes five seconds to set up a Facebook page, Instagram page, all that jazz. And you can record anything on high quality on your new iPhone and chuck it up on YouTube. And the admission is, is free. You can create content right now and chuck it up there. But there's also a little bit of danger with that because with anything, you have all these positives from this explosion of online content. But then you get some people thinking, where's the money in this? Which, like I said before, Pracky was never in it for awards, as, as nice as they are. Pracky's never been in it for money. I think it's fair to expect that if you put a lot of effort into a product and a lot of people get a lot of value from it, that, you know, sometimes Pracky does cost me money to run. Um, a lot of people find that's, that's fine. That that's, they're not in it for that reason. So I think it's fair to expect that maybe these people that are getting value from it can give value back to help you break even. Um, but there's a bit of danger creeping in now because it is so new. There's no ground rules at all. And I've just seen firsthand some people trying to take advantage of beginning teachers' anxieties and nerves and thinking, you know, targeting is these people. It's a bit like an online scam that targets old people at home they understand the internet by saying, oh, you have a virus, pay us 150 bucks, we'll get rid of it, get rid of it for you. It's almost like going to the beginning teachers that are, are nervous, uh, that are feeling inadequate in the classroom and saying, well, for the low price of so-and-so, you can be an expert teacher. And I've seen that firsthand. And it's not something that I'm completely on board with, to say the least. I've seen it creeping. Um, so I suppose... For beginning teachers, I think a lot of people, I'd say 99.99% of people go into it for the right reasons that are from education. No one goes into it. I'm sure <laughs> you didn't start this amazing podcast to be rolling in dough in, in a few years. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> and then with Pracky, I didn't, uh, yeah, I didn't start Pracky to be a, a millionaire. So, I, But the problem is, is that people from other industries that see education as the big cash cow and you see it with people that make a, a bad one is classroom resources and classroom classroom utensils these companies that pop out of nowhere or classroom technology as well these people that they've never been in a classroom they've never been teachers yet they come in and say oh well you need this and they sell you on the legitimacy of this new thing and suddenly you know they're charging hundreds and hundreds of dollars to schools and teachers and even students and parents to, to try get an edge 
So I think what we might talk about in the next podcast is that experience that I had seeing this ugly side of edgy business and this explosion of online content firsthand. And um, I suppose if someone's listening, thinking about creating their own YouTube video or creating their own articles on LinkedIn or their own podcast, what they can do to get the positives of that industry and avoid the negatives. That's awesome. Cause it, and that's what uh, we'll be doing next time. So, uh, you know, and, and I appreciate you, you sharing. This has been, it's been a lot of fun today, but before we wrap up for um, this episode, Liam, um, can you tell people where to find you, reach out to you and uh, um, connect with you to learn more? Yeah, definitely, for sure. I think the easiest way to get into contact with me is to go to pracky.com, uh, which is P-R-A-C hyphen E.com. There's a contact form on the very homepage there, which is connected to our email address. And then if you have any questions about beginning teacher support, or if you're thinking about creating your own online content, whether it be a YouTube channel, podcast, or Instagram page, or whatever it is, and you need a little bit of advice about traversing that or creating that, um, or making an impact in that space, yeah, just chuck in a, a, an email and I can get back to you as soon as I can. Awesome. So, you know, next time we're going we're gonna to get into uh, the experiences you have with Pracky and why people should be careful of what, what exists out there. And uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, um, teachers you know, possibly starting their own social media outlets, you know, using a podcast, YouTube, and, uh, and uh, maybe start their own business and such and uh, some thoughts they should keep in mind. Uh, but before we do that, before I let you go, one last question. If, if you were getting ready, you know, if you were talking with some brand new teachers, they're, they're getting ready to have their first day of class and uh, they haven't been in that classroom yet, they're preparing for it. Um, they just graduated and they got their first job and now comes that first day of class. What's one thing you would tell them? What's one piece of advice you would tell them um, to have uh, in preparation for that first day? It's a great question. And I've heard we've been asked that a lot. And then a lot of people on our panel, I've found it interesting, like, seeing the history of that question because so many teachers have a different answer for that question. <laughs> you get that right. <laughs> Some more conservative teachers might say, think about the layout of your room. Think about where the naughty students would sit. Think about the rules of your classroom. Thinking about how you're going to set expectations. You know, I mean, you can do that. I mean, that's the boring answer. I mean, of course you want to say, <laughs> what do I want from my class? What do I not want from my class? And trying to get that, communicate that to the students. I mean, that's, that's the boring answer. But I think the, the real nitty gritty of that question is to think about, again, who you are as a teacher. I think that's going to come across more because sometimes I've taught in a way that's not me. So I'm quite a relaxed sort of teacher that gives a lot of agency to the students about the way that they like to learn. Um, so I'll try and change the content around and find an access point for them to engage with it. Maybe I might talk about something in the news. Maybe I'll talk to them about what happened on the weekend. Maybe I'll just talk to them generally about, you know, things that would impact them on a day-to-day -day level. And I'll actually use that as an access point for the content. So as a teacher myself, I don't really care if they're in 
two straight lines. I don't really have a seating plan and I don't particularly like looking at old records. You know how you can look at last year's grades for the students. I don't really like pigeonholing them too much because I know for some students in the staff room, I'll say, God, I love that kid. That kid's always fantastic. And another teacher will go, that kid. Oh, I hate that kid. <laughs> you kind of get that. How can you possibly like having that kid in your class? You know, <laughs> I actually really like having that kid in my class. And then other times you go, oh, this kid's causing me some trouble. He would, would not stop talking today and didn't do this. He didn't do that. Didn't do his assignment. And then you go talk to a science teacher and you go, oh, he's always a dream in my class. I don't know what you're doing. So, and teachers are so different that I think it's probably unfair to look at a student's past records and try and make some sort of summary about how they're going to be that year or that term or even that week. Students change so much. I think the only thing that you can control is, your, is you, I think. So I'd say control what you can control and think about how you would like to control and try and get the students on board with that way. I mean, of course, if you try to be Mr. Mr. Relaxation and come in there and <laughs> try and be, Hey kids, it's all right. You can call me Liam. It's all right. And then that, you know, there's a kids that has a lot of negative behavior. I mean, of course you're going to have to change, but I'll think about who you want to be as a teacher and try and match that as close as possible to your real personality because the students can see through it in a second if you're putting on an act. So I don't like being an authoritarian. One day I tried to be an authoritarian because my mentor teacher was an authoritarian and I always had trouble with that class. So think about who you want to be as a teacher and, and try and, So that'd be my first point of advice. And my second one is think about a way that you can make the content interesting. So don't get too bogged down in content, of course, but think about who your students are, what they're like day to day and think about ways that you can make that engaging for them. So maybe come up with a weird activity that these students have never done ever um, in the classroom, but has some sort of moral to the story at the end that links to the book you're going to teach i've charlie the teacher that i had at school i will never forget it we had a activity about the crucible um it's people that haven't read it it's about the witch trials the salem witch trials and basically the moral of the story is that people the way people interact with each other and the identity society thrusts on someone so that's that's what i what charlie wanted to teach us so as we entered literally lesson one of the term he didn't talk to us at all and he gave us little sheets of paper and he said to keep what was on the paper a secret and immediately we were in the palm of his hand you imagine you that as a that's as a student you're walking into english double english and you think oh god what's gonna go on here especially if a kid hates english yes. and suddenly they get met with that you think oh what's gonna happen here and on the piece of paper was roles that you would have in that sort of society from Salem. So it might be butcher, baker, candlestick maker, you know, stuff like that. And that was your role in society, in that society. So he got everyone in, everyone got their pieces of paper, everyone followed it, put it in their pockets. We sat in a circle and he said, okay, guys, 
you've all got, got roles from society, but one of you is actually a witch on your piece of paper. One of you has a witch and that's your role. Your job for the next 20 minutes is to interrogate each other. And as a class, we're not going to continue until as a class, we've elected one of you as the witch and we all have to unanimously vote that that person is the witch, no matter what. I thought, Oh, wow. So for the next 15, 20 minutes, you know, he sacrificed half a lesson on this. Nice. <laughs> we're walking around. We were, he didn't talk about rules. He didn't talk about the classroom setup. He didn't talk about unit plans, summative assessment, formative assessment. He said none of that. For the next 15 minutes, we're going around interrogating each other. <laughs> you know, nice. There was a bit of noise, but we're, we were in totally engaged with what we were doing. Eventually, we all said that the, the goth girl of the class was the witch. <laughs> Maybe just because she looks like one. But um, everyone in the class said, yeah, without a doubt, that girl is the witch. And we all had our reasons. One of us said, oh, she hesitated when, we, when I asked her what her role was. Someone said, oh, she avoided my questions. Everyone had, in their mind, a perfect reason, a rationale for why they said that this person was the witch and why she should be burned at the stake. And then Charlie said, all right, guys, so you all think it's her? And we think, yep, yep, definitely, that's the witch. And then he said, none of you are the witch. Nice. Not one of you has a piece of paper that has the witch on it. And our minds proceeded to explode. We were just like, what? Oh my God. Oh, some of us are rolling around on the floor. No way. I can't believe it. And he said, well, that's what happens in the crucible. Everyone has their rationale for why someone's a witch. The whole town agrees that this person's a witch and that person is burned at the stake. But none of them were the witch. So it talks about bias, prejudice towards certain groups and all that type of stuff. You know, prejudice towards the goth girl. You know, nice. She looks yes. like a witch. She just looks like a witch, you know. Right. So therefore she has to burn. So that's that. And he said, that's what's happened in the book. And we initially had no idea what he was doing. Yeah, we, had, we all collectively had that light bulb moment at the end of that activity. And we all had an understanding for not only what happens in the crucible, but also for the deeper meaning and the theme that he's trying to get across for the whole unit um, about prejudice, bias towards groups of people. And he achieved that within 15 minutes and had us all in the palm of his hand. So that's something that I'd say, if you're a beginning teacher, think about the deeper meaning of what you're trying to get across and come up with a weird activity or some sort of <laughs> nice. some sort of things that this is a bit of a code breaker. Even get all the chairs around the edge of the classroom, get all the kids in the middle or walk to the back of the classroom, get all the kids to turn around. <laughs> Just do weird stuff. Be unpredictable. Right. Um, that's always that. I, that's why I always loved his, his classes. So that'd be my advice. That's the way I like to teach anyway. Awesome advice. I love it. I love it. It would uh, keep them thinking right from the start. And what a cool, engaging activity. I mean, that would have that would have sparked a lot of discussion at the end of that, especially, <laughs> you know, going back to uh, Monty Python. How do you know she is a witch? She looks yeah. like one. <laughs> <laughs> she turned me into a newt. There you go. I got better. <laughs> <Yeah>. Nice. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> 
<laughs> Liam, it's been awesome today. Thank you so much for spending time. Looking forward to part two. And uh, um, you know, today I've been talking with Liam D'Aliciums, and he's the founder of Preki, who, whose focus is to you know help in that teacher drought and help make teachers successful. And we're going to learn more about uh, um, Preki, its mission, and uh, and a little bit about edu business next time. So, uh, Liam, thank you so much. Thank you, Steve. I'll see you then on part two. Hey, welcome back. This is part two of my two-part interview with Liam D'Aliciums. We're talking edu business, why educators need to be careful in and around edu business, and lessons learned by Liam in dealing with a bad situation that's centered around edu business. Lots to learn today. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share and subscribe. Enjoy. Liam D. Elysiums is an education entrepreneur, registered teacher, post-grad master student, and academic researcher from Australia. After seeing firsthand the dismal state of affairs of beginning teachers across the world, Liam co-founded PRAC-E to help find a solution to the teacher drought. PRAC-E has hosted several PRAC-E symposiums and teacher panels and have created regular digital media to support beginning teachers. Through PRAC-E's work, Liam has been the subject of a nationwide story on the ABC News, as well as being a special guest on several education podcasts in Australia and the United States. Liam's most recent goal is to aid teachers wanting to start their own media channels, professional development training program, or edu business. This unregulated business world can be scary and unforgiving for teachers, as Liam found out during Pracky's growth. Liam hopes to be an agent of change in the educational sphere and continue to challenge traditional, traditional ideas. Liam, welcome back for part two of this talk. How you doing? <laughs> Hello to everyone. We're having a little bit of <laughs> technical difficulties. Unfortunately, Australia's got worst in, uh, not as good internet as um, Qatar, some studies recently came out and we can thank some of our past governments for that decision. Nice. Um, but uh, hopefully I've had a little fiddle with my internet. So hopefully I'll be able to <laughs> stick around <laughs> and we won't have the shortest podcast in human history. <laughs> we say, everybody, thank you very much. So uh, that was Liam. Yes. He said, hi, we're good. So, <laughs> so, well, let's see what we can, we can do. So just kind of remind everybody, this is part two of a two part episode. And, and uh, last time we uh, talked a little bit about teaching and what Pracky is all about. And, and we let in with, uh, with this, we let left off with the idea of what edu business is and why it's been exploding. And we had this as a teaser um, because this is where I want to pick up is uh, why people should be wary of edu businesses as teacher school entrepreneurs. So kind of want to pick up from there. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds good. Um, as Pracky got more audience and more people jumped on board with our message, we became privy to the world of edu business, which is kind of a new thing that's been around. I suppose it's always been around in some way, people trying to make a dollar from the education industry. But as the internet's come to full scale, and the price of admission is zero now in terms of making your own content or making a product. The world of edgy business has grown astronomically. And now you have people from other industries thinking that maybe it's the big, you know, the next big cash cow. So when people make things out of goodwill, whether it be events or podcasts or YouTube channels or other initiatives, sometimes there's a few sharks swimming around the edge and uh, I've seen it firsthand happen to Pracky itself and some other people um, that I've worked with as well. And I suppose because the 
industry is so new and there's so many people making new things, as exciting as it is, there's no ground rules. Whereas some people that are, you know, the marketing world or media or film and television, um, it's probably a bit more well-known. But I think teachers are a naturally altruistic kind of giving bunch of people. Um, it's basically what the profession is when you get down to it. So I've just heard some horror stories of people being taken advantage of this new world. So I think it's an interesting topic of to talk about and it's an important topic to talk about because it's not talked about because of how new it actually is. And it's really not. I mean, instead it's, it's all kind of like, you know, it's, it's kind of like the Instagram world, you know, Instagram, everything's perfect and everything's wonderful. And everybody drives Lamborghinis and has three yachts and stuff like this. And, uh, and has the biggest plates full of food I've ever seen in my life. Um, you know, you know, can you basically, um, they got to be a little careful about edu business. Can you share a little bit about the, you know, what you went th through with Pracky, the, what you stumbled into? We caught it very early, which is lucky for us. Um, I remember I talked to you not soon after it first happened. I was a bit negative about it. Uh, um, but now I can kind of reflect and see that we actually did handle that situation pretty well. Basically what happened is that Pracky creates the, symposium events that we do we also create digital media and we got into contact from a guy knew a guy you know you it's always kind of these these very loose connections and um he said oh i do kind of training as well i can i can help you you know make your audience more consistent i can help you with your branding i can help you with your marketing and I'm education first and marketing second. So I suppose I always had a little bit of, um, I wasn't as confident in my skills, I, which is a bit silly because everything I've achieved with Pracky has been by myself up until that point. But just because I'm not naturally, you know, out about town with all these type of things, I thought that he knew best and I knew nothing. And the sound of, you know, the hardest thing, if anyone's ever worked in event management, the hardest thing isn't making the event, it's getting people to come. That's the hardest thing to do. And we had a bit of success because as soon as we talked about Pracky, beginning teachers were really great in terms of supporting it. Something that's in dire need in the industry, but it is a lot of work. Um, it's daily work, daily, you know, long hours trying to, get some sort of connections with people. So when he said, oh, I can actually work with you and make, you know, get people to come consistently and then you can worry about other stuff. I thought, great, that sounds good. Because <laughs> the, the event management side was probably my least favorite thing about um, Pracky in terms of like everything else was a, was a breeze compared to the, the logistics of putting on an event where, you know, 50 to 100 people can turn up. So we were talking to him um, a bit more about it. And then basically, it, I'm going to not say it was a scam, but it, it, I'll just say it wasn't as honest as um, it was first laid out. When we were first talking about it, um, he said that he did some training as well, some PD, pedagogical development sessions in schools already, and that these for were for teachers kind of in the middle of their careers. So he's like, oh, it flows on perfectly. Like we're going to have such a great working partnership between you and Pracky. 
and uh, I'm always Pracky's my my baby, so I was always a bit um, hesitant about letting people too close into the inner circle without actually knowing what they are, who they do. So I was always a bit hesitant about that. He said, "Oh, basically, what we'll do is that uh, I'll help you get people to your symposiums, and then in exchange, you can advertise people to." come to my workshops and then that's how I'll get my value and you don't have to pay me a cent. You know, I'll get, I'll get my value from people coming you know, through the advertisement of my product through your product. So I suppose that was appealing in some way cause I'm still at uni student and I don't have two cents to rub together. <laughs> uh, but I also was a bit hesitant because part of our core pillar of Pracky is that we're agenda free that people can come to us as an authentic voice and that they know for a fact they're not being sold a product. And we've had numerous people come to us saying, if you advertise X, Y, or Z, we'll give you this, we'll give you that, we'll support you here, we'll advertise you here. And um, it didn't really take much for these people to start coming in. And a lot of the time I reject it because, as I said, a core pillar is that People know for a fact that they can come to us in their time of need. And it's not all to, you know, sell a set of steak knives at the end. So I was always a bit hesitant about it, but I thought I might pursue this a little bit further because he's doing something similar. So it's not really advertising a, a product, so to speak. It's advertising someone that's, you know, a like-minded person where they could maybe get further developed and further training so i was talking to him a bit more about it and uh, we actually got up to the stage where it was a uh contracts formal contracts are being pulled out um from his company and that was sending warning signs in my mind i thought if it's a good partnership you kind of in teaching you always get to do it for the cause you know i've had so many jobs where <laughs> there's not a paycheck at the end you just do it because you love it um, that's why I'm in it anyway. Um, so I was thinking, uh, where's the mutual benefit here? Like, it seems to be like we were helping each other out, and now there's contracts involved, and there's key performance indicators involved, and that's never why I started Pracky. Like I said last podcast, one of the strengths of Pracky is that we were able to be a bit like Muhammad Ali and roll with the punches. When, when things come up, we can change. We can chop and change to see what our audience actually need during the time. Whereas when contracts are involved, that would make it bureaucratic and slow down the process completely. And then basically there was a number on like the fourth or fifth page of this contract saying uh, in, in small writing, Luckily, I have a friend of a friend who's a, a lawyer and they said, you do know you have to create 40 grand worth of value to this guy or else you owe him that, that amount of money. And I was thinking, what? What do you mean? And they said, well, look here. And, and I kind of took him at his word um, initially. But then on the contract, it said that Pracky would provide this guy 40000 Australian dollars, um, which is probably a little bit less. <laughs> it used to be equivalent, but not anymore to the American dollar, but uh, $40,000. Um, 
over the course of the year. And if we didn't hit that mark, there was all these processes we then had to get into that would extend the uh, partnership. It would put that amount of money that we didn't make him onto the next contract. And basically, if we didn't make that money, we would then be in a self-fulfilling contract that would renew every year with this dude. And we'd just owe him more and more and more and more. And if we didn't, if we did make $40,000, he would say, oh, great, the partnership's working well. So anything above that I get. Because <laughs> I gave you that. I, my, my expert marketing gave you that much money. So I said, um, I said to him, so Pracky's made $0 up until this point. Now you want me to make $40,000 up until, in a year. Um, I thought that we were getting mutual benefit from the events that we were both running together and that you'd be a string to our bow because we're talking about similar things. What actually do you want me to do to um, get this number? Because stupidly, I'd kind of rushed a signature on this contract there's probably a massive mistake. I was just like, oh yeah, cool. Sounds good. Sign it. And then retrospectively, I got a lawyer and he said, oh, well, events for me. I want you to find venues for my events. I want you to find the audience for my events. Um, I want you to find panelists to come to my events and then I'll come in and do the training on the day. And then that's how I'll get my money. Um, so I was thinking to myself, that's not what you said before. You said that you were going to get value from our events, but now you're saying that we have to create completely new events and we have to do all the hard work and you come in on the day, you swan in on the day and do all the, or do all the fun stuff or the easy stuff. I said before, wow. my least favorite thing about Pracky is all the logistical event management and that's all he wanted to do for us. So obviously he thinks it sucks as well. <laughs> he's got, he's got to get these, these young punks in, take advantage of them, swindle them in some meaningless contract um, and basically force us into being, you know, doing all the hard stuff of his, of his profession um, or whatever it is. So after, after we found that out in its full length, I said, look, we're out. I'm gone. This is, not feeling right my gut uh, my gut wasn't feeling right from the very beginning and i should have trusted it but i thought that i didn't know anything and he was the expert because like you said his instagram was him posing with gary vaynerchuk <laughs> posing you know with the, the fancy cars and I thought, oh wow he's like he's like a, the real deal he's like the entrepreneur and i'm i'm this this loser trying to make ends meet he knows everything I didn't trust myself and uh, I let it kind of fool me, I suppose. Um, and then when the contract, and then as soon as we said we weren't in is when the shark eyes rolled back and we could see who he really was and things has got even more negative from there. Wow. This is, uh, and, and so now you're coming out of that, right? You've, you've, kind of that's kind of the, a chapter that's behind you though 
Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it was really, I mean, it did, I will be honest that it did make my passion for this type of world waver. Um, there are a few weeks there. I thought, Oh, what's the point? You know, this is all too much because he then said, Oh, I'm going to get my lawyers involved. Um, and then basically what he did was when we said the contract's done, we, we're gone. He went back. Um, and he said, okay, every minute you've ever talked to me now, I'm going to charge you for, um, because I was going to get my profit from your events, but now that that's not going ahead, now I'm an independent contractor technically, which means you owe me an hourly rate for every time you've talked to me ever. Wow. It's kind of like when you go to an accountant or a lawyer and they give you a whole bunch of small talk at the beginning and then you realize they factor the small talk <laughs> into the bill at the end and you go, hey, we were talking about the footy on the weekend. I wasn't being charged for that. Um, it's kind of like that. And, and he even charged us for the, meet, the emergency meetings I called about the, uh, the dodginess of the contract. He said... <laughs> When I, I forced him to meet and I said, right, explain this in black and white. Um, and I pressured him and, and to basically to admit this because what he was before and after me signing that contract were very different. So I suppose that is a little bit of an excuse as to why I signed it. As soon as I signed it, all these, all these things came out of the woodwork about uh, $40,000 and this and that and what we owe him. And he, he completely changed once he swindled us into that signature. So yeah, he said every single meeting that we'd ever had, he charged us. And um, the hourly rate, I mean, you would expect that we were hiring Gary, Gary Vaynerchuk. <laughs> so his, his hourly rate was astronomical. And um, like I said, the, the whole reason we went into this contract in the very first place was that we didn't have two cents to rub together. And it was all for kind of altruistic reasons. Um, and now he's saying, oh, you owe me eight thousand dollars and even more for like three meetings um that lasted two hours because he's like oh for every hour we meet i have to do four hours of prep work for that so you you owe me really for every hour is really actually five hours and every time i talked to him the number was increasing because he was and then i'd say well that's not right and then he'd go okay fair enough and then he'd reduce the hours but then increase his hourly rate and make his money anyway you know, he was doing some dodgy things behind the scenes and, um, and then he was really unprofessional as emails and he was threatening to get lawyers involved. Um, and we actually never really worked with this guy ever because my, I trusted my gut and we, we never did an event with him ever. Um, and we left Prakki alone. Um, and I suppose it was for, for silly reasons, thinking that we could spread our message to more people. We could help more people. Um, we could create a community of beginning teachers, which has always been the goal. We could almost be the, the advocate um, or the little, little union for beginning teachers almost. That was kind of my goal. And someone saw that, ignored all those positive things and just saw it as an excuse to push their own agenda. But it is behind us. Um, it was a dark period for a few weeks there, dragged on for far longer than I liked. But um, I think, in a way, it's positive because I was proud of the way that we stuck to our guns. We didn't let meaningless numbers of subscribers or likes or whatever it is to blind us. 
we kept to the core pillars of what Pracky is. And uh, we stood up to the sky and we got through it. And uh, now we know, now we're, we're wiser for the fact. So I suppose why I wanted to talk about it with you today, Steve, is um, like I said, the sky is unchecked in this education world. And I think like us, teachers are very giving by nature and uh, someone that has a, is gaining a little bit of momentum with a podcast or a YouTube channel or whatever it is. Um, can easily get swindled by these these people that have been in the business world for years, scamming people for years. And it's it's so wild because you're right. You know, as a, as you know, almost to a to a t. You know, just I mean, I, I can count. You know, this every educator I've almost ever known is you know that they would easily possibly fall victim to something like this because they're because they are in it for helping kids, you know, achieve their dreams, do what, do what they want in the future. And lots of that requires them to use, you know, they use their own money to, to buy props and things and software and apps and this and that to make things work in the classroom. And, uh, you know, if, if the principal says no, or if they never even ask the principal or the, you know, or anybody else for any other funds they you know, they're doing it on their own and thinking that, uh, all is going to be good. And so they, they have that same sort of interaction with people outside, um, thinking that, that they might, you know, be there to really help them. And so, you know, it's, it's sad seeing, in, you know, running into one of those types of, scamminess or scammy people that don't have the same uh, focus. Yeah, of course. I mean, it'd be the equivalent of base. I, I know I, I throw us into the mud sometimes by saying how stupid we were about signing that contract. But I suppose if you're thinking about how people fall victim to it, it's imagine someone coming up to you and saying, I can get rid of the worst part of your job and double the amount of the good stuff that you actually like. So with your podcasting, I can get rid of all the editing. I can get rid of all the, I can get rid of all the technical difficulties about talking to someone live in Australia. I'll just let you do the interviews. I'll let you talk to interesting people. I'll do the editing. I'll do the marketing. Don't you worry about it or events. I'll, I'll get the, you know, I'll get the people to come or creating resources. I'll, I'll foster those partnerships with people that can produce your resource or YouTube channel. I can get you the views. I can, whatever it is. Um, it can be incredibly enticing because then you can think, Oh great. Now I can, I can interview more people on my podcast. I can find even more interesting people because I can devote more time to finding new people. Um, I can f- foster more time about creating high quality videos, podcasts, events. Um, and it's, it's interesting that one side are going in it for the good reasons and the other side almost use that against them. They blind them with their, their altruism. Um, uh, it's disgusting in some ways um, that, you know, some people will, will try and make a dollar at any cost. It is disgusting because it's, you know, it's like, you know, to, if you work with me, we could probably do so much better because you could help use my expertise and then drive me in that direction. But if you use, if you don't have the truest of intentions and you're just trying to figure out how to make money for yourself, then yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's scary how together as a team would have been so much more beneficial, most probably, instead of, you know, just trying to glom on and and take what they can kind of like a bottom feeder <laughs> you know it's at the bottom of the ocean or something yeah yeah 
what did what's one of what's one thing you think Pracky should have done just completely differently? What if in hindsight, what do you wish you you know? What's one of those big things you just wish you'd done so differently when you started this interacting with this person? Yeah, yeah. Um, I was a bit hard on ourselves during the time. Um, I was thinking when I was when all this was happening, I used to I was pretty down on myself because. A, I kind of fell for it, I suppose. Um, I felt like I did. And there, therefore, I felt like I'd let the beginning teachers down that we work with. And in the other, in the other form, I was hard on myself was that um, I felt like because I'd even entertained this guy, that I was like him. And that maybe I am in Pracky for all the accolades or the views or, you know, because that's what he's in it for and he's working with me. Maybe, maybe it was, you know, selfish of me to pursue this, this avenue. Um, so there was a few weeks where I was a bit down on myself, but if I was thinking back on it reflectively, I think what I would have changed is that I would be far more confident in ourselves and who we are and that we don't need people like that to progress and that like you said if you work with people it should be an equal partnership towards a greater goal it should never be to make money it should never to be you know for anything you can make money in the most boring way possible if you want to go out if that's your only goal you could do anything you know don't get into teaching if that's your (laughs) right right that's that's your goal um go study something you know that's that's gonna make gonna obviously gonna make more money but um people get into teaching because they love it and um that's why we got into doing pracky is that that helping people stay in the profession was a real addictive feeling when someone was having problems and we could help them i mean the amount of satisfaction we got from that was amazing. Um, you can never put a dollar a dollar value on that. So I suppose if I had, if I had reflect about this process, I would have said to my past self when this was happening, stick, stick with your guns. Say, you know, Bracky's achieved what it's achieved by itself. Um, and for our own purposes, our purpose was to spread a message of collegiality and support to beginning teachers. And by ourselves, we had done that. Um, I didn't need anyone else to make the videos or to run the events or to connect with teachers in our area or even to get on the news or to make our YouTube channel or even to get on your podcast, Steve. That's, that was all <laughs> ourselves. We never needed this these type of people to help us. So I suppose my piece of advice for someone that is starting out making content in, in the education space um, is to just roll with the punches again and stick with your guns and think that, you know, everything you've achieved up until this point was by yourself. And when you actually get into the room with these type of people, you realize it's all a sham anyway, and that they actually don't know better than you at all. They appear that they do, but that's the whole point. You know, they're on their Instagram. They may be doing a gangster sign in front of a Porsche, <laughs> you know, something like that, and, right. and having three wedges of uh, of dollar bills. But um, you know, they that, it's all a it's all an act. 
and um, the best way that you can progress as a, as a person or as an organization is to actually make those mistakes because every mistake you make is closer to your ideal self. Um, and for beginning teachers as well, I think for people, people just run of the mill teachers that aren't creating content as well. I think this, this also affects them when these people come into schools and try and sell them their product as well. I remember out on Prac, this guy came in trying to sell his, uh, his little thing. It's basically like, um, it's like an online, we called it an online portal, which is the way one of those buzzwords. You got to be careful of it. <laughs> oh no, he's, he's, he's referring to it as a portal guys, break, break the glass, get him out of here. Um, you know, one of those things where students can all get onto it at the same time and they just get generic questions and you can observe them doing these generic questions on your teacher laptop and you can assign them different tasks and all that type of stuff. And there's a million products like it. Mathletics is like that, kind of. Um, and I, I've just seen it a million times, but our, our head of department at the time was just being completely swindled and they're going, oh, this looks great. Now we can assign this instead of homework. We can do this. We can do that. And I think, oh, no. <laughs> it's like the, the invasion of the body snatchers. You know, oh. she, <laughs> she's pointing at me and screaming across the lunch yard. I'm going, no, not you as well. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That's so a good <laughs> Yeah, for beginning teachers, um, sometimes you can, you can uh, impact, get these people into your workplace as well. You don't even have to be creating a YouTube video or a podcast. Sometimes they come to you. So, yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an increasing world with increasing regularity. It, and that's the scary thing about it. And, you know, and, and so let's kind of take what you've learned and what, what, what you've gone through and what you just talked about. Let's, let's talk about, you know, what things do you, do you think a teacher should do if they want to start their own business? Yeah, sure. I think the first thing you need to do is to think about your product and what, what service it will provide and making sure that that's really watertight and that it's not for selfish reasons i remember one day i was working with a university and they said you know what would be really good our professors always get a lot of pressure on making sure that their work so their theses and all that type of stuff get referenced in other people's theses that there's basically a, a performance indicator and you get a bonus if your work gets referenced by other works there's a lot of pressure to spread your work and literature reviews and all that type of jazz out in the educational space, higher education space to get referenced by other people looking at similar things. And they said, you know, it'd be a great business is working with these professors to like market their theses and making sure like there's some way where you could easily find other work that where these people could reference it. And then we were talking about it and then eventually we said the guy that suggested the idea good friend of mine went actually no that's a really selfish <laughs> stupid business idea that's only servicing one person you know it's so he said that should be always a test of any business idea or any in any endeavor is actually what's the purpose of it you should try and come up with an idea that benefits people the most amount of people ever that you can you can influence Whereas this idea that we had was really only servicing those higher academics, one person. 
So we, we chuck that idea away. So when you're creating your own business idea, think about is there a gap in the market in terms of support or development or interest that is, isn't being seen by anybody, that isn't being talked about, that you can actually support and help people, I think. And then that, that group of people have to be quite large. They can be quite niche, but there needs to be some sort of people that you're helping. Otherwise, if you're just trying to help yourself, I think you may have shorter term success than someone that's doing it for maybe more altruistic reasons. But long term, I think you're going to get more people to feel ownership over your organization or people to join your initiative if it's, if it's helping a large amount of people. So that'd be my first, my first piece of advice is to really think about your product and who it's helping. Awesome advice right there. This is just awesome. So I want to use that to kind of go back, kind of take a step backwards now, because we talked through some of the, 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 the stuff that you uh, had to deal with and, and walk through. And we kind of mentioned the, some of those troubles that happened there. Can you kind of lay out a little bit, you know, just a little bit about what dangers of the business training um, world has for teachers? And can you just talk a little bit about a term, contrapreneur? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, the entrepreneur space is probably the most notorious of any space in the world. These kind of, I'm sure everyone sees it on their YouTube or on their Facebook <laughs> And if you search it once, you're gone, you're dead <laughs> because the algorithms say, ah, this person likes this legitimate person. Let me, let me throw in all these other entrepreneurs um, to them. And then suddenly you're bombarded with all these people. Um, so basically um, I didn't come up with a term myself. I have to give credit to a YouTube channel called Mike, Mike Winnett was his name. He's from a northerner from England. And he was, he's basically like the little watchdog for this space um, of these guys that say, oh, there's some kookaburras outside. <laughs> so you might pick up kookaburras on my microphone. That's a native Australian bird that makes a crazy noise. There's literally four of them right outside on the banister. So you might hear them through my audio. Very cool. There's a little bit of, Austra <laughs> little bit of Australian culture for you. Nice. Um, so well, I've lost my train of thought. Okay, so entrepreneurs. So you might heard, might have heard of Gary Vaynerchuk or Gary V or um, there's a few others out there. There's like big running conferences where all these people meet up and uh, they say they can 10x your business and if you work with them, you can, you know, we'll get you more, more viewers, more subscribers, more money in your pocket. Uh, it's a whole industry, really. And once you scrape off the surface level, you realize how many people in this industry actually exist. Um, obviously, Pracky is in the digital media space. We're making YouTube videos and all that type of things. And even with videos where we're getting 50 to 100 views, you know, nothing astronomical. But we're still getting endless messages, emails from these people saying that they can you know, they can 10x that amount. We can get tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. They appeal to your vanity a lot of the time. Um, but like I said, a lot of it's just a long con. This, they're, they're, once you look at their business model, it actually just revolves back onto itself and there's no product there at all. 
you know, their business is helping businesses grow, but they've never actually grown their own business. Their business is helping businesses grow. So it's a big loop where you think, right. so you've never actually grown a business ever, you know? Hmm. Um, and you let these people on the inner sanctum um, and suddenly you, you deal with what we're dealing with where they start pulling out contracts and you realize that you can go out, take some press photos. You can go out, make some snappy videos or whatever. And you can, like I said, the entrance fee of making these videos is $0. It's completely free to start up a Facebook page or YouTube page, anything like that. And these people, they can make themselves look like an expert, but once you scrape the surface, you actually realize there's not much there at all in terms of how they can actually help you. Um, And it's very easy to look like you are an expert in the field. Like I said, Find a Porsche. <laughs> it doesn't even have to be your own Porsche. You can find a Porsche parked on the street and you can kneel in front of it or cross your arms and lean on it with wearing some Ray-Bans and, and right. take some pictures. And then suddenly you're, you know, Mr. Entrepreneur or you can um, divide. We don't have $1 bills in Australia, but you can, you know, go get a hundred bucks and a hundred dollar bills, throw them on a, throw them on a bed and, you know, take pictures of it or, whatever it is, it's very easy to appear like something. And then a lot of that's wish fulfillment as well. Like I said, they appeal to your vanity. They'll take these ridiculous photos of them with their own private jets or whatever it is. Um, and then it's, it's to think, oh, geez, I, I want that. I want that amount of money. I want a Porsche or I want a private jet. Whereas in reality, the people that actually have influence over people and really rich people, you wouldn't even know it. They don't have to. They don't have to flaunt it around. Um, if people are saying, "I can ten x your subscribers and I can get you this amount of money," usually it's it's completely fake. So, yeah, that'd be my my danger signs. Um, it's a massive world, and ninety nine percent of the time, like I said, they're complete sharks whose business is growing businesses. But if you go through the loop, you actually realise they've never grown a business themselves. Which is, you know, which is sad because if someone talks well enough, speak, you know, <laughs> speaks well enough, uses the right words and uh, can connect into your vanity enough uh, about what they're going to do for you. The next thing you know is that you're, you know, you're buying into the whole story when if you looked into their background, you might discover that they may not know, first of all, anything about your world of teaching. And uh, second of all, how you even market into that world. Because I know, you know, one of the things that's funny uh, this just happened to me the other day. I, in the position that I'm in right now, I get uh, bombarded with uh, vendors wanting to do business and talk about this product and their product and this product and that product and the, you know how each, each you know each thing, especially in this COVID world right now, is going to solve the the problems of the kids being out of school. It's going to make your teachers perfect remote learning teachers. It's going to you know all this sort of stuff. And and a lot of them, I look at it and I don't even respond to them. And you know, it's funny. I responded to one of the, uh, a vendor the other day who was doing something completely different. And, and I, uh, and he said to me, he said, what made you respond to me? He goes, you're the first person who's responded to me in a long time. <laughs> and because he was targeting the, um, the directors of these, um, regional support, educational support groups like mine. And, and, uh, and then, you know, and I told him, I said, it was part of your persistence and part of your message. And I just want to hear what you have to say. And it, it was just funny when he said that to me, because it's difficult if you don't understand the education 
world either. It's difficult oh, to so to so true, so so true. I remember once um, there's an Australian guy who's like the Australian budget Gary V, um, and uh, <laughs> he he just rips off Gary V's stuff. He's not very good, um, but he taught. He had the walk and. Uh, he had the talk at this one conference I went to and uh, on his Facebook page, he's saying, oh, we're offering free advice, free one-on-one sessions if you ring this number. And I was thinking, oh, it's free. I might as well see what he can say. He might be able to help me like make better videos or make better audio or you know, get my message clearer. So I gave him a ring and I got one of his probably one of million assistants that actually never, <laughs> never met him ever. Um, <laughs> And like you said, the education industry is so niche, but that's where your product can actually make a lot of impact. So with Pracky, especially being in in Australia, um, I sometimes feel bad with... <laughs> so I'm working on a, um, an international summit for beginning teachers at the moment. We've got some people from America, um, South Africa, and uh, I'm kind of the representative for Australia. And uh, they're saying, oh, yeah, we can do a podcast and we get these thousands of people or we can go this or spread your message in these forums. And I'm thinking, oh, no, Australia's going to be the little ugly duckling <laughs> just because we, we don't have many people. Um, we've only got 24 million people in the whole country. Um, and those are divided up into the major cities, which are quite um, shut off. There's not as much collegiality. Whereas, uh, it might be a generalization, but uh, I think in America you could make something in Atlanta and someone in Detroit or Cleveland or Miami or Boston or, you know, they could still get value from it. Um, whereas in Australia, like I said, in the other podcasts is, um, you know, someone from Victoria would never listen to someone, something from Queensland cause they think, Oh, they don't know the Victorian way. <laughs> and you know, these, these, so in Australia, there's a lot less people to talk to. Um, and regions, because the country is so big, regions are locked off. Someone creating something in Melbourne um, down the south of the country couldn't really create something for someone in Cairns, which is the tropical north of the country, um, which has got the same climate as Rio de Janeiro and Melbourne's got the same climate as London, England. You know, that, that, that shows the, you know, the, the, the absolute scale of this country. Um, and in up north, you've got more indigenous populations. You've got more people, uh, Torres Strait Islander populations. So education is completely different. And also, if you've got to think about, all right, so we're targeting beginning teachers, right? So we have already established that Queensland's kind of locked off from other states. Um, if I create content in Brisbane, we're most likely going to get people from Queensland watching it there may be some crossover with South Australia or Victoria or wherever it is, but most likely it's going to be the Queenslanders. Um, so you go, all right, now most of these people are going to be watching from Brisbane. So that's one city in the whole of the state. So reduce the audience by that number. Okay. All right. So we've got people from Brisbane. Now the only people going to be watching a teacher thing is going to be teachers. <laughs> a plumber is not going to be watching our videos. So, reduce that number to just teachers in Brisbane. Then you got to think, okay, but we're to beginning teachers. So teachers within the first five years of their career are going to get value from this. There's some crossover generally talking about education, but strike off the list, 
any kind of senior teacher or veteran teacher or teachers that's kind of established, especially with a name like Pracky, they might think, oh, it's for pre-service teachers. I'm not a pre-service teacher. I'm not going to watch that. So then we're thinking, all right, so we're talking about beginning teachers in Brisbane. Um, and then we're thinking, all right, it's probably reasonable to expect that we could get into, we could let half. No, that's usually a pretty good number. Half the number of people you want to reach, you'll probably reach. Um, and once you minus all of those things, you're probably talking about hundreds, maybe thousands of people, probably hundreds, high hundreds, people in, in beginning teachers in Brisbane that are willing to watch a video. Um, and then you got to think, okay, so what's someone from America going to teach me about marketing and promotion? Why should I give this guy thousands of dollars to help our marketing techniques? Because this guy on the phone was like, well, you've only got, you know, so-and-so amount of likes on your Facebook page. That's pretty pathetic for, he actually said, that's pretty pathetic for someone that's been around for two years. You've only got this amount of likes. You know, for someone that's trying to sell a product, you should be, you know, thousands of likes, tens of thousands of likes. But I thought, there's, we're only appealing to a few hundred people really i mean as, uh, if people from all around the world can watch our videos and get value from it that's fantastic but ideally you got to expect that the most people that are going to engage with us are people in brisbane we're looking at beginning teachers that literally is only hundreds so if we have a, a few hundred likes i mean to me that's great conversion um and to try and explain that to him was just a waste of time um, they're, they're more, a lot of these people are probably better at selling peanut butter or toothpaste or, you know, and actually a product that you can quantify right. and you can sell to everybody. But one thing I quickly found out is that these entrepreneurs have no idea about teaching. They have no idea about education. Um, especially they, like you try and <laughs> tell them the very basics of it about, oh, it's split into public, private and this school works like this and they'll have no idea about how it works. And a lot of their advice is just not applicable at all. Yet they're charging thousands of dollars. They might say, well, why don't you just do this? And you think, well, that's not going to work because you know, I'm not trying to sell to Joe Blow down the street. I'm trying to get into, you know, create collegiality with beginning teachers. It, it doesn't apply like that. And then once you kind of, once they do sort of understand Obviously, they'll never have an understanding that a teacher would have. But once you kind of explain that, I mean, that's going to be a 20, 30-minute conversation on the phone and you're paying for every minute. Once you explain it to them, they don't really have much to say. <laughs> they'll say, oh, okay. Uh, well, what you need to do, Steve, is uh, make a podcast interviewing teachers and then uh, put that podcast online. And then, yeah, thanks, mate. I've been, that's, what I've, <laughs> that's what I've been doing for years. And I go, oh, well, keep doing what you're doing and uh, I'll take half your profits uh, for that advice. And you think, yeah, get stuffed, go away. Um, so I think keep, especially within education, it's so niche. No one's ever going to have an understanding that someone within the industry will have. And a lot of these people will be, will be trying to sell. Like I remember some guy saying, Oh, if you want profits, what you got to do is buy blank t-shirts from China for cheap, put a recognizable city name like iHeart Brisbane, and then sell them at 10 times the profit, drop shipping on Amazon. And I was thinking, right, 
why would I do that? I don't sell t-shirts. <laughs> right. I'm not interested in having a drop shipping company in China. I don't want to do this. It's like, oh, but it's straight revenue. I don't care. I don't want straight revenue. I'm not selling t-shirts or, a, uh, or mugs with world's best dad on them. I, I really don't care about that. I mean, if you want to make easy money that way, I suppose you can cheat the system and do that type of things. But um, that's the type of advice you'll get. So stick to your guns, make connections within the industry. I think that's the best way to go. Awesome. Awesome advice. And it, you know, and it's something that, uh, you know, just a side note, just everything that you're just talking about. I mean, uh, the teaching crowd is, is a different group and uh, all you got to do is it, just as a teacher, if you're thinking about creating your own business within the teacher world, I think one of the things all you could do is just Google classroom management and suddenly you'll find there are a lot of people out there who think they <laughs> who are offering wares on that. And, you know, it's uh, so they got to kind of getting back to something you said, they got to kind of stick their guns and watch out for the people that uh, want to sound like they know everything, but really know very little about uh, helping you expand that business. What, you know, uh, real quick, we're, we're starting to get close to wrapping up. And, uh, and, uh, one of the things I want to make sure that uh, we did here is if, uh, someone wanted to work, reach out to you and, uh, and, uh, learn more about Pracky and what you got going, uh, where would you send them? Yeah, sure. I think the best way to contact me would be to go to Pracky.com, which is P R A C hyphen E.com. Um, you're not going to find any shopping page there. You're not going to find any products to buy. <laughs> no t-shirts. Unfortunately for my wallet. No, no t-shirts. Um, but if you would like to uh, keep up with what we're doing or check out our YouTube videos or whatever it is, if you're interested in what we talk about, the links are all there. You'll be able to find it quite easily. Uh, I think what's more important though is that there's a contact form on there. And... If you have any questions about traversing this world of starting your own um, product or, or whatever it is, if you want to start a YouTube channel or a podcast or whatever it is in that kind of space and you're worried about these sharks or you want a little bit of advice about how to reach out to people within your field from someone that's been um, experimenting within it for a few years and had successes and failures, um, I think that just chuck an email my way um, and I'll, I'll be more than happy to have a chat with you or to send through some advice on uh, email. Um, I'm completely happy to do that. And there's no steak knives that you have to buy at the end. <laughs> nice. Nice. <laughs> um, awesome. The, uh, so I got a, I got a couple of questions, last questions I want to ask you. And, and the first one goes like this, you know, when, when things get really tough and you got a lot of stuff happening and, you know, like you're being bombarded over here, you're bombarded over there and things look, look uh, just like there's, you know, you just can't uh, get, get a break. How do you keep yourself going? What, how do you inspire yourself to say, uh, I'll get out of this. This will be fine. We got a better day coming. Yeah. It's something I still struggle with. Sometimes I do have those days where you just want to be under a duvet for the whole day and <laughs> do absolutely nothing. I completely understand that. Sometimes those days are necessary. Sometimes you have those days where those mental health days where you say, you know, I just got to do absolutely nothing for a while. Um, and then that makes you a better, I think you have decision fatigue. So a term floating around at the moment where you got to create decisions so much um, and that your mental energy is sometimes gone by midday because you've just been swamped by so much that you have to do. So something that I like to do is kind of, 
I've done something recently that's actually really helped um, me because I struggle with it for a long time. Um, I'd have the tendency to, you know, I've got a lot of drive, I think. I like doing a lot of things. Um, I've got a lot of focus, but that comes out at a cost a lot of the time as well. And anyone that's similar will understand what I'm talking about, that you can get anxious about what's going on. You know, you care about so many things all at once that uh, sometimes you doubt yourself or sometimes you get anxious or a bit panicked about the way things are going. So one thing that I've actually done recently, oh, a lot of things didn't help with that as well. Um, you know, I still would, I'd do this, I'd do that. I'm a bit too, um, my, my mother's side's German. And um, I'm a bit too German for meditation <laughs> or anything <laughs> like that, if that makes sense. Um, I always think, oh, this is stupid. Oh, I think, oh, I'm so, so selfish, you know. It's, I just got to have some time for me, you know. And I, I always, I don't know. I, it works for some people, but I'm not a spiritual person at all. And whenever I try to, you know, the usual stuff that you think of when you Google calming your mind and all that type of stuff. It, it, it didn't work for me at all. I always used to think about how silly I looked if someone walked in right now and I'm thinking about my third eye and I've got my legs crossed. And Yeah, it, it, I always kind of, I can't get in, I'm a bit too logical, I suppose, to get out of my own mind. I always just think, I'm just sitting here with my eyes shut. How is this, how is this helping? <laughs> um, so that type of... Uh, that type of world didn't help me much. So I, I, at one point I kind of just said to myself, Oh, well, this is just kind of the, the thing I like, a uh, those famous musicians that always have struggles as well. You know, would they be as artistic if they didn't have their, their life's pain? There's always a big question that always gets asked. Um, but I one thing that's actually really helped me at the moment is, uh, I read an article recently about planning your free time as, meticulously as you plan your working week um, and to do that you actually make a list of things you enjoy and you you don't attach any uh, judgment to that um, you don't think well that's a silly thing to enjoy um, you just you just chuck that on there you make a list and you be as honest as possible and you go a bit deeper as well you don't just put on the surface level so for example if you say I like going to the museum you wouldn't on the list say, I like going to the museum. You'd put in, I like learning about new things. I like experiencing, you know, different sensory experiences. Um, I like learning about different new cultures. You kind of go into why, why do you like going to the museum? If your little hobby is painting little figures, you know, recreating a little civil war scene or using little, little, um, little figures, you could say, I like, you know, hobbies. I like creating something. I like, you know, making something little and getting lost in the, the grand scale of what I'm creating. Um, so I'd list those things that you actually enjoy. And then I would book your Saturday, Sunday with those things you enjoy and, and plan it as much as you plan your work week. Because a lot of the time you think, oh, Right, Friday night I'm doing stuff all. I'm not touching anything. And then Saturday, I'm going to sleep in Saturday because I've been getting up at 6 a.m. every day. So Saturday I'm going to sleep. 
And then Sunday, we're going to have a chill day or there's some chores I need to do around the house. And then Sunday night comes around and you've done nothing on the weekend and you, <laughs> you feel depressed. You think, oh no, I've done nothing this weekend and now I'm straight back into it. Um, and suddenly you feel like you've never left the house and all you do is work. So doing this technique actually stops that. So, and do it with your partner and your loved one as well. Write down what they actually enjoy and try find some collaboration in there. So, and then book it out and try find something you both enjoy. So for example, she loves um, collecting dolls. It's like little fashion dolls. She used to do fashion and there's like these dolls that you can collect that um, have like r- actual runway fashion on them. She likes collecting that. I've got no idea about it, but that's what she likes collecting. <laughs> and then I found out about myself that I quite like um, renovation or, or um, refurbishment, like getting old furniture that's beat up from an op shop or, um, and then uh, and doing it up again. So you can get like an old cupboard or something like that for 20 bucks. And then, you know, sanding it back, giving it new varnish, making sure the door, fixing the door so it can actually go around. That's something that I actually, I never thought I was handy, a handyman, but that's something I did it once to fix an old guitar of mine and I absolutely loved the process. And so now through doing this thing where we both write out what we actually enjoy, we've got this now with this little project where um, her dolls were everywhere they were on the floor. Everything I, every cupboard was full of dolls and I thought, we got to put these dolls somewhere. So what we thought was um, we would find an old cupboard and send it back and then make a little display cupboard out of a, out of a doll for her dolls because I, I like creating something and she likes her dolls. So that was our little weekend project and we would never have, and we, now we really enjoy working on that together. It would have been something we would never would have done if we didn't do this process of actually thinking objectively about what we like, what we don't like and booking our weekends as strict as we book our weekdays. That's, that's so cool. That's great, great thoughts, great information there. Cause that's, you know, it's some of the stuff that lots of people struggle with and uh, appreciate you giving us some thoughts about that. Cause I love your advice. I love it. That's, that's good stuff. I got to make sure I do that for this weekend. I guess. <laughs> um, so Liam, I can't thank you enough for that. So, uh, you know, I got, uh, I got one last crazy thing that I want to ask you because this has nothing to do with education. Well, not quite anything to do with education, but you know, you live in, you live in a, in a nation that I guarantee you that if you talk to a lot of Americans visiting Australia is on their bucket list. And at some point yeah, they, yeah. they got to go there. I mean, and they think of things like the great barrier reef, probably just about everyone's seen the, some of the most famous pictures of Sydney. You know, they think about kangaroos and koalas and, and uh, kookaburras. I mean, I can even sing part of the kookaburra sits in the old gum tree song. <laughs> you know, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and, you know, and, uh, and of course, and there's Hollywood and sorry, my, my age and my time frame, um, Paul Hogan and Steve Irwin are, are big uh, exports from Australia that uh, impacted yeah. my life forever. You know, I think I told you in the past that, uh, you know, forever, uh, in minute work talking about Vegemite, you know, and you've actually shown me yeah. now what it is. <laughs> and, and yeah. you know, what, what's something that if, if, if you had one thing to tell someone who's coming to visit Australia, that you think they should make sure they see? We, <laughs> um, 
it's a great country. It is a great country. Uh, um, Americans sometimes get a bit um, shocked that sometimes Australians are a bit harsh about Australia. But <laughs> sometimes we go, oh, this sucks. This sucks. And American we go, well, I'm, I'm very, Americans are very patriotic. Um, and they would never, never insult their country. But um, sometimes that's, that's a little Australian. I suppose the cultural difference is that sometimes we, uh, we tease our own country a little bit. So sometimes I might be a bit negative <laughs> about <laughs> Australia, but I do love, I do love Australia. It's a great country. Um, I would suggest um, trying to go off the beaten path a bit and, and see some things about Australia that um, aren't on the tourist brochure. Um, because there's, it's an incredibly diverse country. It's one of, if not the biggest country in the world. Um, and there's so many things that are incredibly different. Um, so for example, we actually have snow in, in Australia. A lot of people don't know that we do get snow. I've never seen snow in my whole life, but, um, we do have snow. Um, and it's a little in the top of Victoria, there's a little town called Bright. I think it's B-R-I-T-E, I think it's called. Or it might be spelled like B-R-I-G-H-T, I can't remember. But if you just chuck in Bright Victoria, um, it's probably the most beautiful town I've ever been to. It's pretty small, but um, it's actually like Alpine, kind of like what I assume Montana or Minnesota or you know that type of um, Northwest America. Uh, lumberjacks and all that type of thing. It's kind of gotcha. our version of that. There's pine trees and snow and um, big mountains and rivers with uh, melted snow straight off the top of the mountains coming down and perfectly clear water. Oh, wow. Um, that's a little city that I love. And um, there's a, a restaurant there called 13 Steps. and it, It's um, because it's 13 steps down to this little wine dungeon basically and it's uh, got little candles and stuff like that an old convict brick um brick little thing back from the convict era um and some of the best food and wine i've ever drunk and that's a little city so that's if i could suggest um in terms of uh, people coming over to america i mean obviously do the touristy things i live about an hour and a half away from australia zoo back where, where steve Irwin used to used to be around um, that's obviously one of the best touristy things you could do. Uh, I've seen the Great Barrier Reef and as a native to Australia, it is, it is really amazing to see, especially if you go out to sea a little bit. Um, uh, but yeah, it's a great, it's a great city to go to, but it's incredibly diverse. Um, so you could go up to the top of North of Queensland and you would get, you know, incredibly hot, crystal clear white sand beaches um, coconuts and all that type of stuff. Or you could go down south of the country and get incredibly cold, dark, dingy Melbourne. But Melbourne's got all the, the art and culture and music and little um, street art laneways and little cool coffee cafe places and things like that. So there's a few, there's a lot of interesting places to go to. But if you ever go to one of these cities, um, make sure you go to the little towns surrounding it. So if you go to Brisbane, for example, go check out Toowoomba where I grew up or there's a little place called Mount Tambourine um, where it looks like something out of the old Predator, like the old Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. Nice. <laughs> like it's, all, nice. it's, it's like tropical jungle. Um, or Melbourne, go up to Alpine, Victoria. Go check out, um, you know, Bright or 
Ballarat or Bendigo or, you know, these, these really amazing places that are around the edge. I think that's, that's where you'll get the, and see if you can drive in between these cities as well. Um, sometimes this is a bit boring, <laughs> like Brisbane to Mackay, you really get, you get sick of, um, there's this one type of cattle that we have called Brahmin. And this one day we were doing that drive and it's literally about a five, six hour drive in between cities and all that's in between is just gum trees and Brahmin. That's nice, nice. And I, one day I was like, I'm so sick of gum trees and Brahmin. Can I see something else? There's hundreds of, hundreds of kilometers of just seeing these stupid cows. Um, but there are, there's some stretches um, in between these cities, which are really, really beautiful, really, really pretty. Um, and the people are lovely in Australia. They're usually, uh, we're a bit friendlier than our British, British brothers and sisters, but, um, <laughs> you can hack the accent. Um, yeah, definitely come on down. Very cool. Very cool. I appreciate you sharing the idea, especially cause that's cool. I'd never would have thought snow. There's never in a million years when I thought that the, uh, um, and that, that's cool to hear about that. I, and thank you so much, Liam. Thank you so much for spending time with us today over the, these last two episodes and sharing the lessons learned with uh, Pracky and, and all about the entrepreneurs and uh, what's going on in the edu business and, uh, and giving some advice to teachers about uh, understanding if they're going to start a business, some things that they need to do. Uh, it's been fun catching up with you again, and uh, I greatly appreciate it. Best wishes to all you do. Yeah, of course. Anytime, Steve. Thanks so much for having me back on. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is excited to be a member of Voice Ed Radio. Voice Ed Radio, your voice is right here. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. Podcasts for educators, podcasts by educators. The opinions expressed on Teaching Learning Leading K-12 are those of the guests and hosts. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is intended to share ideas, advice, and suggestions for classroom teachers and school administrators. Teaching Learning Leading K-12 is produced for educational purposes. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll share it with your friends.